0: One of the most emotionally moving experiences of my entire life was when I visited the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, Israel, for the very first time a number of years ago. I was there again just about 10 or 11 days ago, and every time it is impactful, but nothing like the the first time. As the name suggests, it is a museum in honor of and in memory of all the Jewish men women and children who were slaughtered during the Holocaust. There are pictures, articles, timelines, and other items that tell the story of that horrible event in human history. One of the most emotionally stirring parts of the presentation is the section that is devoted to all the children whose lives were snuffed out at such a young age. As you walk into this small building, it is pitch black. In fact, it is so dark that you have to hold a handrail to know which way to go and to keep from stumbling. You can't even see to put one foot in front of the other. As you walk through the building, there are candles all around you that represent the lives of the children who were killed. I have since found out that there are actually, supposedly, only four candles. But there are so many mirrors in this building that it looks like hundreds and hundreds of candles. Also, as you walk through, the only thing that really takes place in this part of the museum is an audio recording. You hear names being recited over the public address system, names stated very slowly, and the age of the child, and then the country or the place where the child was killed. So it may say something like this Rebecca, age two, killed in and then it will name the place. Yosef or Joseph, age four, killed at Dachau. Miriam, age one. And this is all that's all there is to this entire memorial in the children's section. It is the names of the children who died. I still have not heard or verified if they have made it through the list of all the names, even since the beginning of that uh, memorial was set up. The first time I went through the entire memorial, including the children's section, I was physically and emotionally drained from thinking about how much the Jewish people suffered during the Holocaust. And yet, that was only a portion of what they have suffered throughout history. Satan has always hated the people of Israel because God has chosen those people to be the people through whom the scriptures were given and through whom the Messiah came. Furthermore, God has promised to give the people of Israel a glorious kingdom with the Messiah ruling the nations. So Satan hates the people of Israel, and down through history, he has persecuted them. Hitler and Stalin are examples in more recent history, but the story goes way back to Antiochus Epiphanes and even further back than that. The passage we come to in this message gives us a behind-the-scenes look at why Israel has suffered so much and why they will suffer even more In the days to come, let's turn together, if you're not already there, to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, for our time of meditation in God's Word. Revelation, chapter 12, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. John writes Now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. And on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, ...to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. As we enter into this 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, we are entering into the second half of the book, which, as you know by now, is largely devoted to the future seven-year tribulation period. There's a sense in which we've already worked our way through most of that time period because we've already seen the blowing of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11, and the blowing of the seventh trumpet signals the beginning of the end. But before John describes the results of that seventh trumpet in chapters 15 and 16, he pauses to give us even more information about the seven-year tribulation period that he has already been describing. That additional information is recorded for us in chapters 12, 13, and 14. For us to really appreciate the significance of, Of the final judgments in chapter 16, we need to get insight into the hidden forces behind this great climax of human history and the personages that play a part in that climax. That's what we are given in chapters 12, 13, and 14 as John tells us more about Israel, more about Satan, more about the Antichrist, and first-time information about the coming false prophet. All of this helps us understand why, in chapter 16, God is going to completely obliterate the final kingdom of the seven-year tribulation period. That future struggle is merely the outworking of a conflict between God and Satan that has lasted throughout history ever since Satan's fall. That's exactly what we see depicted here In Revelation chapter 12. As I mentioned a moment ago, Satan has always hated the people of Israel because God has chosen that nation to be the people through whom the scriptures were given and through whom the Messiah came. Therefore, one of the dominant themes of history has been Satan's attempts to destroy the people of God, to mess up the Messiah's line, To thwart God's plan for Christ to accomplish his work of defeating Satan. Let me give you some examples. We'll turn to some and I'll just mention some for the sake of time. The first murder in human history was when Cain slew Abel. Why did Cain murder his brother? 1 John 3, 12 tells us when it says, Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Cain was in Satan's camp, if you will. He was of the evil one, 1 John 3, 12 says. He was in Satan's camp, and Satan prompted him to kill Abel, who was the man through whom Messiah may have come. But God provided another line when Seth was born. Then in Genesis 6, you have the bizarre story of a certain segment of demons cohabiting with women to destroy the purity of the human race to prevent Messiah from coming. But God preserved a righteous remnant when he sent the flood to destroy all the inhabitants of the world except for Noah and his family. Then God chose Abram and Sarai to be the parents of the chosen line through whom the Messiah would come. Shortly after that, not coincidentally, the Pharaoh of Egypt took Sarai into his harem and would have defiled her if God had not intervened by sending great plagues to have her released. At every turn, beloved, at every turn, you see Satan trying to thwart God's plan. In fact, when Sarai was not able to conceive, she offered her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to produce a child. So once again, the plan of God was in jeopardy because God's plan was for the promised seed to come from Abram and Sarai. Then Sarah was taken into another harem, the harem of King Abimelech. But God warned the king to release Sarah, and he did. It was another close call in Satan's attempt to mess up the chosen line so Messiah could not come. But finally, Sarah had the promised son, and he was named Isaac. When Isaac was grown, you know the story, he married a woman named Rebekah. And as amazing as it is to believe, Rebekah was also taken into a king's harem. The king of the Philistines took her, but through a series of God-ordained circumstances, her purity was preserved, and she was released to her husband, Isaac. As we skip ahead in time, in Exodus chapter 1, we see another event which was prompted by Satan in his attempt to destroy Israel and the chosen line of Messiah. Look at this event with me, back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke, to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah and he said when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools if it is a son then you shall kill him but if it is a daughter then she shall live this was a satan inspired attempt at genocide verse 17 tells us but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Once again, God preserved his chosen people and the nation through whom the Messiah would come. If we had time, we could jump ahead to the book of Numbers and See, Satan using the counsel of Balaam to King Balak to get the men of Israel to commit harlotry with the Moabites. It was another attempt to destroy the purity of the Jewish line so Messiah couldn't come. Then again, if we had time, we could jump forward to the book of 1 Samuel, where we see repeated attempts by Saul to kill David, which would have obviously prevented the Davidic covenant from becoming a reality. In fact, you may not know this, but on two different occasions in Israel's later history, two occasions, the line of Messiah was down to one person. And the promise of a future Messianic king was basically hanging by a thread. Let me show you those two examples. Look at 2 Kings chapter 11. Keep turning past Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then we have First and Second Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Second Kings chapter 11. Second <clears throat> Kings chapter 11. Says, when Ath, verse 1, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, um, Ahaz, I'll get it right here in a second, uh, Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So you think, oh, okay, close call. They hide this kid for, you know, a few days till the danger's over. No, look at the next verse. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Ahathaliah reigned over the land. This is almost difficult to believe. Joash was hidden in the temple for six years to escape the satanically inspired plot by Athaliah to destroy all the royal heirs. Another similar incident is found over in 2 Chronicles 21. Turn over past 1 Chronicles to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. This incident, by the way, actually took place before the one we just read about in 2 Kings 11. But if you're familiar with the chronology of Samuel, King's Chronicles, uh, that. They don't always mesh together exactly right. So it looks like we're looking at a later event. This is actually an earlier event. Second Chronicles 21, verse 4. Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of, Jew, of Israel. Jehoram was thirty-two years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had the daughter of Ahab as, as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever." On both of these occasions, the line of the Messiah was down to one person. And the promise of a future messianic king was hanging by a thread. Satan tried to destroy the messianic line, but God was faithful. You can add to all of this the captivity of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and the captivity of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. Needless to say, there was great potential for the line of the Messiah to be obliterated or corrupted during those times of captivity and dispersion. As an example of this, all we have to do is consider the story of the book of Esther. If you know the story, then you know that there was another satanically inspired plot by a man named Haman to annihilate all the Jewish people. This kind of murderous attack against Messiah's line and Messiah's people, continues in the New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Over into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. We read a story that is familiar to us, especially around the Christmas season, of King Herod and his murderous hatred. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. As you know, the Lord Jesus was actually the target of this murderous plot. And although Herod was the one to implement it, you can be sure that Satan was behind it. Satan tried to prevent the Lord Jesus from being born. And once he was born, Satan tried to kill him before he could even grow up and accomplish our redemption. But Satan wasn't successful in killing Jesus as a child. So he continued his onslaught during the life and ministry of our Lord. In Matthew 4, Satan attempted to kill Jesus by tempting him to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. In Luke 4, the crowds in Nazareth were enraged and attempted to push Jesus off a cliff to his death. Look at John chapter 5. Go from the first gospel account to the the fourth, the final one. John chapter 5. In the early verses of this chapter, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And we pick up the story in verse 16. It says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. This was the continual pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. People tried to kill him. And you can be sure that Satan was pushing them along. We know that by what Jesus says in chapter 8 of John's gospel. Just turn over a couple pages to John 8, verse 37. John 8, 37 Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 44. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. Satan tried desperately to keep Jesus from finishing the work God had sent him to do. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and my father are one. And then the response, verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And you know that when they, they were going to stone him, they weren't going to throw little pebbles at him. The goal was to crush his head and take his life. Look at chapter 11. One more verse here in John's Gospel. Chapter 11, verse 53. It says, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. This is nothing new, nothing new at all. This is what went on throughout our Lord's life. It started thousands of years earlier as Satan sought to destroy Israel and the messianic line. Satanic opposition to Israel and especially to the messianic line is clear in both testaments. We get the behind the scenes look at our text or added in our text in Revelation chapter so let's go back there to consider that text together. This takes us behind the scenes to see or to explain why all that we have just looked at here has gone on and why it will even intensify, intensify in the future. Revelation chapter 12. John says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head a garland of twelve stars. By using the word "sign," John lets us know that this woman is not a literal woman; she is a symbol. This is apocalyptic literature, the Book of Revelation. Apocalyptic literature is literature that is found not only in Scripture but outside of Scripture. It is the use of symbols, uh, bizarre uh, creatures, to communicate truth. This is a symbol. This woman symbolizes something else. The question that naturally arises is, what does she symbolize? We are given a clue by the way she is described in this verse. She was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. That is obviously a reference back to Genesis 37, 9 through 11, where Joseph had a dream about the sun, moon, and stars. There in Genesis 37, it is a reference to Jacob, Leah, and the sons of Jacob. Here, the description is used the same way. It it refers to Israel and Israel's twelve tribes. We also know that by the information given to us in the rest of this text. This woman is Israel, and the twelve stars are a reference to the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 2 Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed in this very same manner. She is portrayed as a woman giving birth. That's exactly what John saw. And he says that she was in pain. That is a reference to all of Israel's suffering and all of Israel's agony down through the centuries as they awaited the coming of the Messiah. That's what is being pictured here. The child in the womb of this woman is the promised Messiah. Messiah came through the Jewish people. The Messiah came through Israel. In Romans 1-3, Paul says this about God. He says, "...concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord..." who came of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus was born of the seed of David. Both Mary, Jesus' physical mother, and Joseph, Jesus' legal father, were in the family line of David. Both. This was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 and fulfilled by the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was his earthly father Personal name, which means or describes him as Savior from sin. Christ is his title as Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus was God's anointed one as prophet, priest, and king. Lord is his title of deity and his title of sovereignty. He was God, but he was born. And when he was born, it was in the line of David. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5 say this about the Jewish people. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, listen to this phrase, and from whom, the Jewish people, the Israelites, from whom, according to to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God? The greatest honor and blessing ever given to the nation of Israel was that from its loins came Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus was a Jewish man, but since he was and is also God, Paul adds the last phrase in Romans nine five: "Who is over all the eternally blessed God." Jesus was a Jewish man. When he was talking with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she had no problem identifying him. Do you remember the conversation? She said to him, you know, you, what, what are you being a Jew doing talking with me, a woman of Samaria? She knew he was Jewish from his appearance. Maybe the way he was dressed. He was Jewish. But he was God. And so he is overall the eternally blessed God. So here in Revelation 12, John sees Israel depicted as a woman in labor and in pain to give birth. At the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, Israel was in a great deal of pain. They were under the heel of Rome, and they had suffered much under Rome's rule. Verse 3 tells us, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. Once again, because John uses the word sign, we know that this dragon symbolizes something. It it represents something or someone. The question is what or who. Thankfully, we don't have to guess. We know from verse 9 that this is a reference to Satan. Look at verse 9 where it says, So the great dragon was cast out, That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Here in verse 3, the dragon is red, which probably alludes to all the bloodshed he has caused and he will cause during the tribulation period. He is pictured with seven heads and ten horns because of his rule over seven past kingdoms and his future control over ten nations in the Great Tribulation. This is not the first time in Scripture that we are told that there will be ten significant kingdoms or nations during the Tribulation period. Daniel told us, About this all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. Back up there for just a moment. Back to the book of Daniel in Hebrew scripture. Chapter 7. The book of Daniel as you probably know is extremely important background information to understanding the book of Revelation properly. Daniel chapter 7 verse 7. Daniel says, After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. In the early verses of this chapter, Daniel has already described three beasts which represented earthly kingdoms. But this fourth beast was so unusual that no living animal could represent it. Daniel says this beast was more terrifying than any animal Daniel knew. This beast also represented an earthly kingdom. This beast represented the Roman Empire. The emphasis Daniel places on the Roman Empire as he describes it was its overwhelming destructive power. At the end of verse 7, Daniel says this beast had ten horns on its head. And then he says in verse 8, as he continues the description, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. What does this mean? Again, we don't have to guess. Over in verse 24, we are given the interpretation of these ten horns. Just look over in verse 24, same chapter. It says the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and he shall subdue three kings. It's very important to realize that this indicates that the Roman Empire would experience three distinct stages. First, the beast stage. Second, the ten-horn or ten-king stage. Third, the little-horn stage. The reason why it's so important to understand this is because later in this chapter, an angel will tell Daniel when the Messiah will set up his kingdom, and the timing is directly related to the three stages of the Roman Empire. So the ten-horns are ten-kings that will someday rule in the Roman Empire... But as Daniel watched, another little horn grew and uprooted three of the horns, or three of the kings. The end of verse 8 says that this horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. We find out later in the chapter that this little horn is the Antichrist who will one day rule the revived Roman Empire. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. As I just mentioned, the angel indicates that the Roman Empire would experience three stages in history. Number one, first the beast stage or the conquering stage. This stage is very descriptive of the ancient Roman Empire, which ruled during the New Testament era. The second stage is the ten kingdom stage. The angel is saying that eventually the Roman Empire will have ten rulers or ten nations as a part of it. Beloved, this is extremely important because if you look back in history, the Roman Empire, watch this, has never, ever consisted of a ten-nation confederation. Never. Therefore, this form of the empire must still be future. There is going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. I found it interesting a number of years ago, January of 1981... Greece joined the European Common Market as the 10th nation. And a lot of Christians at that time who know their Bible were pretty excited, and and they they were saying, oh, that is the fulfillment of prophecy. Well, we need to be careful because the the number has greatly expanded and changed quite a bit. But it is interesting that in the same area where Rome once ruled, there has been a 10-nation confederacy attempting to come into power, and it's still an ongoing process in play. The third stage of this empire will be the little horn or Antichrist stage. Verse 25 describes the character of this little horn, the Antichrist. But we won't take the time to look at that now because we've done so in the past. But this is important information to understanding this vision of of Satan that John sees in Revelation chapter 12. So let's go back and now input this information into our text in Revelation chapter 12. In verse 3 of Revelation 12, John saw a great red dragon with seven heads. at seven past successive empires, ten horns, ten nation confederacy of the future. Verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. In Job 38.7, the term stars is used to refer to angelic beings, and that's the way the word seems to be used here. When Satan fell, he drew a third of the angels into his rebellion. Down in verse 8, they are specifically called his angels. By the way, this verse shows us why Satan hates Israel so much. The main focus of his hatred really is the Lord Jesus, But he hates Israel because of the Lord's close connection with Israel. And coming through Israel, coming to redeem Israel, and in the future giving Israel a kingdom. So he has tried to destroy Israel, and he will try again in the future. And he tried to destroy the Lord Jesus from the moment of his birth and even before. Verse 5 says, she, that is the nation of Israel, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is obviously none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who will rule all nations. There's no doubt about that. There are so many passages that affirm that. Psalm 2.9 says, You shall break the nations with a rod of iron. It's a messianic psalm talking about the Messiah. You shall break the nations with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Over in chapter 19, when John describes the Lord Jesus in his second coming, verse 15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So the male child here in verse 5 is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born, contrary to all Satan's attempts to prevent it, And he did fulfill God's plan for his life, as illustrated by the fact that after the resurrection, he ascended back into heaven to the right hand of the Father. That's what is being depicted at the end of the verse when it says he was caught up to God and his throne. So the point is this all of Satan's attempts have failed. Multitudes of attempts, many down through history. All of Satan's attempts have failed. What else can he do? I'll tell you what he can do. He can try to destroy the nation of Israel in the future so they won't get their future promised kingdom with Messiah reigning over the earth. That's what he can do, or at least attempt to do. And it's exactly what he is going to try to do during the tribulation period. That's why John gives us this 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. He wants us to understand why there will be so much hatred, animosity, attack, attempted annihilation of the people of Israel during the tribulation period. There's no human explanation for it. But what does explain it is what happens behind the scenes, as we see here in Revelation chapter 12. Will he succeed? You know the answer. No, he will not succeed because God will supernaturally protect his people Israel just as he has done down through the ages. Verse 6 depicts this by saying, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. As we've seen several times in this series, at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel. He will set himself up in the temple, or at least an image of himself in the temple. He will demand worship. He will claim to be God. And he will persecute Israel ruthlessly during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Not only persecute them, but attempt to annihilate them. Kill every Jew on planet Earth. That's his goal. But God is not going to allow Israel to be annihilated. This verse is telling us that He will supernaturally preserve them so He can save them and give them the promised kingdom. But Israel will have to flee during that time. There will be supernatural protection, but it doesn't mean that they can just sit by idly. They will have to flee. Jesus already told them that. As we begin to close, turn over to Matthew chapter 24. From the last book of the New Testament to the first book of the New Testament. And look at, listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 24. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Now who's the you in this verse? Well, the people who would see the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem. So it has to be people in Israel. And then it says, whoever reads, let him understand. In other words, these words by Jesus weren't spoken for his disciples at that time. They were spoken for people who would read them in the future, and especially those who will read them in the future seven-year tribulation period. Then, just in case we're not sure of whom this uh, instruction is uh, directed, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter where it's more difficult to travel. Or on the Sabbath when the the state of Israel basically shuts down as far as public transportation and so forth. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, and beloved, in this context, the elect, the elect people are the people of Israel. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, God is not going to allow Israel to be annihilated. He has promised to save and redeem Israel, and he will do it. He has promised to give Israel a messianic kingdom, and he will do it. He has promised to give the throne of David to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will do it. God is faithful to his promises. Though all hell acts against God and his people, God will ultimately be victorious. We're on the winning side, beloved. Take courage. We're on the winning side. So the verses we looked at in Revelation chapter 12 take us from pre-human history past when Satan fell and drew a third of the angels with him all the way to the future seven-year tribulation period. And they show us why there is going to be so much hatred directed at Israel during those days. But as I just said, God will ultimately be victorious. We're on the winning side. Take courage. We're on the right team. Let's bow together as we close. Father, it is encouraging to see that you have a plan, you will carry out your plan. And though Satan, as formidable of a foe as he is, attempts with all of his resources, all of his craftiness, all of his power, though he attempts to to thwart your plan, you will see it through to completion. And Father, when we see your faithfulness to Israel, it's encouraging to us because we see similar promises to us in the New Testament. That he who began a good work in you will complete it. Uh, we, we see so many promises that tell us that because you have called us into your family, you will be faithful to us, you will complete your plan for us. So even though we, we are not Jewish we're not of the people of Israel. We know you have a plan for them. Hebrew scripture says it repeatedly. The New Testament reaffirms it. Yet as your people in the church, in this era, in this dispensation, we see your faithfulness to us on this side of the cross. And so may we be encouraged and may our hearts be thrilled by the fact that though not only Satan and his demons, but the Antichrist and his kingdom will attempt to stop you. Nothing will stop you. And we thank you for your control, for your sovereignty, for your consistency in doing what you say you will do. We stake our lives on that aspect of your character as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.